Chapter 37. Whistles from the majorettes filled the air over the screaming and cheering of the spectators and the gentle swell of conversation, music, and horseplay from the crowds lining the streets. In front of the majorettes, a team of tractors were slowly driven by husky, thick-necked, floppy-haired high schoolers sporting sleeveless tees and acne. The tractors, pulling trailers populated with letterman jacket-clad 4-H members and other animals, ignorant, cheerful animals to be processed at the end of the year for finals. Cute piglets and calves standing nervously on the moving platforms beside their human overlords. Squawking chickens lined the beds of red flyer wagons attached via rope to the trailers. Since the parade moved so slowly, the town wasn't overly concerned with the usual regimented safety regulations of, say, a Macy's parade on Thanksgiving. Yet this was the highlight of White House social currency, the yearly and creatively named Yesteryear Festival, celebrating yesteryears. A poorly designed float supporting the thrones of the yesteryear king and queen, scions from the town's oldest and most important families, cruised down Highway 110 on the main thoroughfare. Parade would be followed by a weekend-long arts and craft festival, attended by townies and increasingly drawing the curious hipster crowds from nearby cities. The craft fair was punctuated with carriage rides, horses clopping through historic downtown, the old stores on the rail opening for the two days to serve ice cream and barbecue, roped booths hawking jams and doilies, fresh produce and handmade soaps. It culminated with a carnival in the one public park, a hastily erected death trap filled with cotton candy, zipper rides, a creaking Ferris wheel, and a darkened indoor hard rock centrifuge ride that would nauseate and deafen the rider in one shot. Glory appeared down the road at the horses, pretty long-haired girls kicking at their sides, their hooves dancing back and forth across the street with a hollow clopping, little girls in frilly old-time dresses being pulled in small, gaudily decorated carriages by a team of goats, dogs riding goats, large men on tiny motorcycles, just a dude on a four-wheeler and a lady in a go-kart. The entire shebang, as Dottie would say each year, though she had opted not to attend for the fifth year in a row, even with Gloria offering to come and get her for the event. Gloria was pretty sure it was the last stand of her mother's legendary vanity. That, and the fact that the Gazette's latest edition had dropped the night before, with Ted Carroll's long-awaited expose titled The Lakeside Slayer, in a bold, splashy font. Beneath this, a prominent placement for the author and several unanswered questions in a smaller, less attention-worthy font that read, Is the Slayer a local drifter? Did the Lakeside Slayer's lover unwittingly aid and abet him? Meet the victims. Since the previous evening, Gloria had fielded no less than 14 phone calls from old classmates, casual acquaintances, and distant neighbors to simply check in, which was code for calling to mine her like a mineral deposit for additional gossip to go with the sensationalist write-up. Though Ted hadn't mentioned her by name, it was clear who the older local author might be. Gloria had the feeling of being watched again. I feel like people are looking at me. Dee shrugged and patted Gloria's shoulder. No one is looking at us. It's a travesty, I tell ya. Dee pushed her shoulder against Gloria's playfully and wiggled her eyebrows. 
Their voices were drowned out by the baritone wall of sound from the middle school band marching past in staggered lines. You want to walk over to the park and check out the carnival? Dee shouted over the din. Waves of distant, joyful screams filled the air in intermittent bursts with the swooshing scrambler and the hum of the engine fueling the endless loops of the starship ride. The food booths were doing brisk business. Lines of sweating patrons twisted throughout the footpaths. The carnival had, as it had every year, appeared in the early hours of the morning, a great line of old trucks hauling the skeletons of the rides and booths. In an eerie silence, the roadies would emerge in the morning mist ninja style and quickly, silently, snap together the joints and pieces of the entire fairground, unfolding it together like reverse origami. By mid-morning, the carnival stirred to life and the yesteryear attendees made their way into the empty spaces of the grounds like zombies. By noon, it was as if the carnival had always been there, on the soccer grounds of the White House City Park. Gloria could feel the snap of eyes on them as they passed through the familiar crowds. Perhaps she had careened into pure paranoia. Was she feverish again? She still felt like she was experiencing lingering side effects from her bout with the flu. A tall, balding man with olive skin nodded convivially and pointedly at Gloria as he passed the duo, a dark gray eye lingering only momentarily on D, the other clouded. Gloria nodded in response, her brain actively trying to place the face, a face of which she was instantly uncomfortable seeing. It took her a moment after the man swept past them to realize he was one of the orderlies at Dottie's facility. She gasped, her dance partner, his slight smile never wavering, never quite reaching his eye. The man whose uniform said Saint. It was Hanover Saint, hobby stalker and scarer of women. She opened her mouth to warn Dee. Too late, Dee spotted a booth selling locally sourced candles. Ooh! Shouting over her shoulder as she left Gloria to her silent concerns. I'll be right back! Why was that man here? Was he watching her even now? Was he still looking for Henry, or had he come here to warn her? Thank God Dee hadn't noticed her attacker casually strolling the fairgrounds. Gloria turned to follow him, determined to ask him why he was here herself, but he was gone. There was only one major fairway at the entrance, but the tall stranger was nowhere in sight. Perhaps she was imagining things now. People. Gloria's mind was everywhere and nowhere at once. Someone bumped into her from behind. Gloria. Her name was whispered in her ear. She shivered as she felt breath on the back of her neck. She whirled about, but there was only a small child holding tightly to his mother's hand as the woman talked to a honey vendor. His dark head tilted up. The child's attention was on the bright flags that read Ellington's honey fluttering from a nearby pole. Gloria. Her name was whispered in the other ear, seductively, the very voice sending ripples of pleasure down her spine. Spinning around to find no one, Gloria panicked, searching the crowds pressing in around her for Dee's unnaturally brown hair. Dee, she shouted, much to the consternation of the few folks ringing her perimeter. They began to look around for this Dee with her, panicked by the mere panic of an elder in their midst. Who does this Nana belong to? Spotting Dee in a jam booth several rows over, Gloria wove unsteadily through the arms and legs of the fair patrons, her eyes alert and searching. It was the one blind spot she hadn't scanned, 
scurrying past the dark alleyway of the abandoned town center that acted as a photogenic backdrop to the last row of the bazaar and fairgrounds. One second she was hurrying along, and the next, Gloria felt a cold, damp hand clamp over her mouth before she could even think to shout out for help, and she was pulled into the dark, grassy corridor that ran between the old maroon brick courthouse and the white mercantile of downtown. Don't scream, he commanded, his breath against her ear. Her body was molded to his, his arms encasing her own powerfully, holding her still. She could feel her heart beating out of her chest, the electricity in the air crackling between them in time. <laughs>